I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. The real history of Burgundy terroir begins 150 million to 200 million years ago, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. During this time, Burgundy lay underwater, in a European sea dominated by huge crocodiles. All the sea creatures that teemed in this Jurassic broth can still be found as fossils in the ancient limestones of Burgundy. In the Côte de Nuit, the oldest limestones are close to the surface. And in the Bone, newer, more crumbly limestones are closer to the surface. Fast forward several millennium, and we find ourselves reading the poetry of Henri Dandeli, who wrote a poem in 1224 describing a wine competition. The title of the poem is The Battle of the Wines. Henri writes a few lines of Bone wines, noting that a wine is best not too yellow more it is green than ox horn. But alas, Bone did not win the ultimate battle of the wines. The prize went to a sweet wine from Cyprus, made from partially dried grapes. Bone became more famous a little later in the 1300s, when the papacy was located in Avignon. The wines at Bone were considered of higher quality than what could be found in Italy at the time. Later in 1395, Philip the Bold outlawed Gamay from the Côte d'Or, which in a way helped to guide the fate of modern-day Beaujolais. During this time period, white wine was valued over red by the aristocracy, and the high-quality whites of Burgundy were popular, though they weren't made from Chardonnay, and most were likely similar to what a Pinot Gris would taste like. As regions of the former Roman Empire broke apart into kingdoms, several factors affected the wine trade. Burgundy's political history became highly varied, volatile, and many Roman viticultural practices fell by the wayside. We also see a shift from amphoras to oak casks. They lasted side by side for quite some time, but when amphoras mostly gave way to oak casks, this greatly changed the wine trade. Vintage wines aged in amphoras were common in ancient Rome, but when wine went to casks, it wouldn't last as long, and much of it was consumed within a year. But still, Burgundian wines were considered to be of high quality. 
1522, Erasmus compares Burgundy to a mother's milk. In 1591, Gregory of Tours writes of vignerons near Dijon, mentioning that they gave the inhabitants so fine a Falernian that they despise the wine of Chalon. In this passage, he likens Burgundy wine to Falernian, which was a famous higher alcohol wine from Italy, a favorite of ancient Roman leaders like Julius Caesar, and it most likely would have tasted sweet, oxidized, aged for decades, and possibly have been slightly resonated. But Gregory's mention might not be so literal. He seems to use the word Falernian to refer to excellent wine in general. Louis XIV loved the wines of Burgundy back in the late 17th century. And by the 18th century, Burgundy and Champagne wines were quite similar and were market rivals in Paris. When we think of 1855, we think of the Bordeaux classification. But a Burgundy classification was also published in this year. And a few years later, the Bone Agricultural Committee based a classification on this work. Later in 1936, the influential AOC system was launched, partly based on the previous classification. In the last 60 years or so, a lot of focus has been placed on soil health. After the devastating effects of phylloxera, global depression, and the world wars, many producers farmed chemically, which ultimately threw acid levels down and potassium levels up. The biologique movement that took hold in the 1980s is slowly bringing back a living balance to the soils, which encourages roots to go deeper and fully translate the unique voice of the Jurassic bedrocks. But what of the future? Global warming is shrinking the growing season, and some claim this leads to less complexity in the wines. Hot topics today also revolve around shaptalization, acidification, oaking levels, tractor use, the effects of cold maceration, and how best to fight off the grapeworm pest. Burgundy has redefined its image in the last 30 years or so, but it's still a dynamic region, and we have a lot to look forward to as many philosophic farming and winemaking ideas continue to play out in the near future. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand Louis Michel Leger Belair of Compte Leger Belair on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, lady. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well. Welcome to New York. Thank you. Short day, but it's cool. 
So your family has a long history in Burgundy? I don't know if it's long or short. I mean, long for U.S. Uh, point of view. It's, uh, yes, because it's two centuries for French point of view. It's pretty short uh, because we are doing wines in France and Burgundy for a bit more than 15 centuries. It's, yeah, it's short and long at the same time. Yeah, we, we, we arrived in Burgundy in 1815. It's uh, quite, this year will be the second century. And at one point, your family owned significant amounts of holdings in and around Vaughan. Yeah, the fact is, uh, we arrived in 1915, as I said to you, and it was one of my ancestors that came in. It was a general with Napoleon I, and he was battling and doing all the campaigns with Napoleon I. And arrived in Burgundy in 1815, on, because he was married with a lady from Burgundy. I mean, we are not coming from, from Burgundy first, we are from the Loire Valley first. Ligier, after Ligier Vidalère is the Roman name of the Loire, then we were really coming. It was a nickname of the family in the Middle Age. Um, then we came from the Loire Valley. We moved in 1550, a few days ago, from Loire Valley to Champagne to be in charge of all the metal king of the king um, during 1550 and the French Revolution in 1789. In 1793, the French decided to cut the, t- the head of Louis XVI, then no more king. And as the job that my family done, uh, that was in being in charge of the male of the king, it was a champion, was given the king, no more king, no more job. And this ancestor decided to be an officer. Only arrived in Burgundy, that I said, because we became married with a lady from Burgundy. If she was, if she was married with somebody from Strasbourg, we make, or I don't know, Riesling. Could or, be Riesling now, yeah. Riesling or, or sausages or choucroute, I don't know. <laughs> She was from Toulouse, she made cassoulet, but no, she, she was from Burgundy. Fell in love with, with this lady and with Burgundy as well. Um, it wasn't easy for me to understand why she fell in love with Burgundy. I understand a bit more now, after 15 years being at the head of the estate, why he fell in love with Burgundy. Um, and he began to buy some plots, some very good choices. For example, he bought Latache uh, in Von Romanet. He bought the seven parcels that have been separated from the 15th century of La Romane to recreate the monopoly we still have today between 1815 and 1826. He bought all these parcels and had this, he was a visionaire. I mean, he, he was, he, he knew where I want to go. He had money enough to do that. Uh, he bought some uh, Chambertin as well. Then, yeah, good choices. We continue to buy vineyards during all the 19th century. Uh, we were one of the five families that bought the Clos Vougeot in 1889. We were the first, it was the first sharing of the Clos Vougeot until 1888. It was only one family in 1889. It was five families that bought the, the, the Clovujo. We were one of, of, of them. Then we had eight hectares of Clovujo uh, from there. Yeah, we, we bought vineyards during all the 19th century. Um, just for an idea, we have more than 65 hectares uh, in many of the Côte d'Uni. Well, we are a Côte d'Uni family from the beginning. We quite never had any vineyards on the Côte de Beaune. I don't know exactly why, but uh, it's really it was it was a decision of the family. Uh, just to have an idea of what we had at the end of the 19th century, we had from north to south, we had three hectares of Chambertin, eight of Clovougeau, just for the top one, of course. We had about 15 hectares in, in Chambol, um, included some crowns, this kind of on In Vaughan, we had La Tache, La Romanée, and La Grand Rue Monopoly. Three Monopolies in Vaughan, it's not so bad. But we have also we had also half an hectare of Rijour. Uh, three hectares of Echazos, three of Suchot, uh, three of Malconsor, two of Brûlé, some Saint-Georges, some Porret, some Vaucrin. Ah, easy. Easy <laughs> stuff. Um, we had some succession problem in the 30s. And when you have succession problem in the 30s, at the time of the Depression, it was a war spare to have some succession problem. But it's, I think it was usual. I mean, that we, with this more than 60 hectare vineyards, we were one of the five, six biggest estates in Burgundy. 
But most of the estate from that period had been sold. We sold that because my great-grandfather dies, let 24 hectare vineyards for the third of the family estate because he had two, two brothers. But he let a, weed, uh, a widow shot off a negotiation company that works well, but uh, on 10 kids. And when my great-grandmother died uh, in 1931, she let the 10 kids again. Um, the 24 hectare vineyards, the sort of the negotiation company that work so, so and so, but not so well, uh, for different reasons. And, um, few things, but among the 10 kids, two were below 21, according to the law at that time, or you wait that they became 21 to make a succession, or you sell everything in the public auction on the, on the brother-in-law of the family that were a very prestigious name, French name, but without any money. Uh, say no, we need cash now on, 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 we have sold everything in the public auction. And it was a worse time to sell any vineyards. Uh, we sold, sold that in August 33 with the 33 harvest for the buyer. Um, and 33 is the real depression in Europe and it's 29 in the US, but it came in 31, 32 really in Europe, uh, 33 was the worst time for depression. It was also a period that we don't sell anyone in the US. Don't forget that it was prohibition at that time. Even it was the end of the prohibition, but for the 15 last years, we didn't sell any, any wine. We didn't sell any more wines in Russia as well. Russia was a huge market for us. Still have some invoices of my grandfather that spent two weeks in St. Petersburg, uh, late 19th century. And it's fun because he spent about three, two weeks on this Hotel d'Angleterre in St. Petersburg. And you have this invoice and you have every day lunch, dinner, wine, lunch, dinner, wine. And after one week, you have doctor, Pharmacy, and up there it's gone well, and it's wine, well, it's uh, wine, lunch, something like that. There's nothing changed on that way as well, even in, in Russia. Um, then, yeah, we didn't sell any more wines for 15 years in Russia. Then it's big market that's gone down. It was the end of week, what we call the phylloxera crisis. Phylloxera arrived late 1817s in uh, Burgundy, destroyed all the vineyards uh, during the end of the 19th century. And we begin to replant grafted um, uh, fits in, in the early 20th century, but the quality was so and so on the until thirties, it wasn't so cool. And all that together make that we sell the vineyards for nothing because nobody wants to buy it. I have a nice comparison we can make at that time. There is a succession on the Lursalus family in the thirties, but at the same time, uh, Lursalus, owner of Ikem at that period, still owner of Ikem for a few centuries as well. Um, and the eldest son of the choice between Ikem and farm in the south of France, and the eldest son said, no, no Ikem, I want the farm, because it was only one, only one way to make money at that time. When the, or cousins of Marémange sold the Clotard in the public auction as well in 33, because I decided to sell, to sell that. There is only one guy in the room to buy it. It was Mamsa. Then, yeah, it was really the worst time. One last thing about that is interesting to have the, the level of prices or the scale of the prices. We sold and we bought, because my grandfather and my brother bought La Romane on a basis of 200,000 francs per hectare. An hectare is 2.5 acres. La Tache, we own as well, was only sold on the basis of 100,000 francs, that half of the price of La Romane. And all the premier cru were sold on the basis of 1,000 to 5,000 francs, and 200 times less than the Grand Cru. That no one wanted to have any vineyard at that time. It was the worst time.
Then we just kept, yeah, we kept some few vineyards. Uh, we kept La Ramanée because we bought it during the auction on the Regno. And we bought the Regno that is just, just, the vineyard just above La Ramanée because no one wanted to buy it. So your grandfather and your grand-uncle yeah, yeah. purchased at that auction yeah. where yeah. most of the family holdings were divested. They purchased uh, back some of yeah. the parcels. And they purchased that back. La Ramanée, because it was a monopoly, and they didn't purchase Latouche because it wasn't anymore a monopoly. And also probably because I had enough cash at that time. Because Latouche uh, is significantly bigger, actually. Like if you're paying by it, the... No, because it was smaller, the period. I mean, that uh, the the real Latouche, the real the original part of Latouche is 1.45 hectares. It's about, let's say, 3.5 acres. And now it's 15. Because of the Because of show. the showing to in that. But we, it was already allowed to use that touch on, 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 we had to fight against and we, 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 we lose, uh, the right to use uh, Latash, uh, only for what we call Latash Jolie Boy, maybe that is the original Latash. Then they didn't want to buy Latash, very not money as well for that. And we just kept this 1.5 hectare, and it's, yeah, 3.5 acres. That's nothing, especially at that period. Because La Romanée is like the smallest Grand Cru. Yeah, it's in two Burgundy. acres. Only two acres, and it's it's nothing. My grandfather was involved in that, but uh, was enough to live with, and he was involved on the on the Negos side. But he, he died during the war in forty one due to the war. When my father was only thirteen, and my father didn't want to be in one business. Uh, on the family, or you're on one business, or you're on the army. When you're on the army, you have to be a general. Then my father decided to be an officer and became a general. Um, regarding the French army now, I prefer to be on the wine side because <laughs> uh, it's a very tiny army, sadly, and uh, we haven't enough general. On my, one of my brother, I know, is already a general, then it's enough. On the family, I can, I could be involved on the, on the wine business. But um, how did that conversation go down? I mean, when you told your dad, I don't want to go into the military, how, how well, did he think about that? I didn't say exactly that because since I'm really a kid, he said me, you will do what you want, but you have to do the best that you can. And it's, we are not forced to be, I wasn't forced to be in the army uh, because my father decided to be an officer because they want to do that. And they let me the chance to do what I want. And I first not decide to be a winemaker. I knew that I won't be in, on, on the army. And he totally accept that and he knew that my mental is not done for that. And when I was eight, we live in Germany in a very nice city called Baden-Baden. Because you traveled a lot because your dad was well, in the Well, I traveled a lot. Uh, French troops still occupied Germany at that time. Even it was a bit more friendly. It was occupied. I, I remember what was early 80s. I went to the Canadian uh, warehouse as well, just next to us in, in Germany. The, the American were there as well. It's, it's another, I'm only 41, but you think it's, it's another world. You didn't realize you were an American uh, because you live here. But you have troops that are occupying until early 90s Germany. Even it was a bit more friendly. It was in the 60s probably, but we were as well. Uh, it was big, big part for us, um, for the army as well. But we live in this nice city of uh, Baden-Baden. If somebody knows, it's really nice. 
it's really nice when you are between 78 or 95 years old. It's like a spa are, town, right? Yeah, it's a spa town and it's a very old spa uh, town. But yeah, when you are younger than 75 years old, you don't enjoy it at all. It's the Palm Beach of, of It's a kind of the Palm Beach, yeah. Not West Palm Beach, sorry. <laughs> but, um, and I was happy to be there on, came during all the summer on, on the house in Burgundy. We, we, we already have the Chateau de Valorbanais. Um, I've never been to the beach when I was a kid. Uh, we were skiing in Germany that we don't go skiing in the, in the winter. We just came home because we want to renovate the house and hear that. Um, after this first summer, after this first year in Germany, I want to be back in Germany and say to my parents, no, no, I want to be on the car. And my parents say, okay, you first had to go on the car. And I went on the car, of course. But my parents say, okay, what, 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 what the problem? So I don't love to be in Germany and I love this house and I want to live here in the future. And my parents say, okay, no problem for us that you live here. I have three elder sisters, but my parents consider that the, the house as a family house. It's a little bit of house and my sister knew from the beginning since our kids and the house will be for me because I'm the son and because I have the name and because we have the coat of arms of the family at the top of the house, then it will be. And I knew that it would be for me, but when you're eyes, well, it's not exactly like that. But my parents said, okay, if you want to, to have the house, no problem. We, we accept that. If you want to live there, we'll be happy with. But if you want to be there, you probably will be involved in the wine business. If you want to have the key of the house, you first have to be engineer. If you're not engineer, you won't have the key. I'm a good son, became an engineer, an analogist as well. And I was graded also in, in wine business. And bring back this tiny family estate in 2000 for the first part. And uh, we had, I mean, yeah, 3.5 yeah, 3. to 4 acres in 2000. And we have now 26 acres. We have expanded a bit the estate, mainly in Vaughan, and a bit in, in the neighbor, close neighborhood. So what was going on is that you owned the vineyards as a family, La Romani and others, and you were selling that fruit or wine to a negotiator. Yeah. In fact, when my grandfather died in 41, my grandmother said, okay, I can be involved in the wine business and I can take care of the vineyards. And she had farmer from that period. Or not exactly farmer. We call that métayer. That is kind of sharecropping. People work for you and, and you have part of the, of the harvest of the crop. And we sell the wine to different negotiants in late 40s, 60s, 50s, and until 62, it was Le Roi, very well-known negotiant in Burgundy, uh, in the world. From 63, it was Bichot until 75, and from 76, it was Bouchard, because Bouchard family was, were cousins. And that's why we came to the Bouchard family. And until 2000, they still have the exclusivity of selling the wines of the estate. I say selling because they, are, they were never involved in the winemaking process and the wine growing. We still had this sharecropper, this métayer. Um, this métayer make a wine for us and we sell them finished wine in their own barrel, but finished wine. And, and they, are, they were not negotiant elevers as they are usually in Burgundy. They are only negotiant, I mean, that they, they bought the, the wine, bought the debt, put their label on it. That was a different label from the Bouchard usual label because we are... It was a pretty Oco, fancy yeah, one, yeah, actually. It was the coat of arms of the family on the on Comte Ligebert. Oh, on, I see. The cross. On, yeah, the, on, on, the, on the Comte Ligebert on the, on, the, on the label. But it's yeah, a different one. And um, we... When I came in my engineer school in 91, 
we begin to say to the farmers or sharecroppers, okay, we know that it's the beginning of the end. Um, we let you a few extra years and we let them come about 10 years in, in charge of the vineyards. And at the end, they say, okay, we stop. And they signed that in the 90s, early 90s. And we say also to negotiate, oh, probably we stop slowly. And um, we stop pretty slowly just because also my family that, that owned the vineyard want to be sure that I was able to pay them for the wine. Then uh, I have to show them my bank deals as soon as possible. And we, also to be fair with Bouchard Perafis, that wasn't anymore owned by Bouchard, but by all your family, but even my father said, okay, we'll stop slowly. Then from O2, for La Romane and Regnaud, the premier cru the top, they just had the half, and my family that had the other half, keep it, and we, we label that on their own, own name. But it's the same wine. So there was a Bouchard La Romney and there was a Leger Boyard uh, La Romney exactly. in 02. But it was from 02 until 05. But it was the same maker, you yeah. basically. You made the, the wine. only one that's Bouchard bring me their own bottle, their own bottles, and we fill their bottles. But the aging was done mainly at the estate. And after they finish the aging and they do the bottling on their own space. But uh, it's about the same, yeah, it's the same basis, it's the same wine. I mean, the only one difference is the oak treatment or oak regime on the bottling, that's it. On the racking that they do to, to bring the, the barrel from my cellar, that I don't do any racking, but it's pretty close. And we finished that in 06, and the last vintage, shared vintage is 05. And from 06, we have the whole cuvee for Comte Gébelaire. For La Romaine and Regno. And at the same time, I was lucky enough to be able to rent an estate from an old family from Von Romane as well, that were one of all former sharecropper, former farmer. We stopped with in 2000. And they decided to stop in 2005, came in 2006 and said, we need to find a farmer. We were your farmer during the 50 last year. Maybe you could be our farmer for the next years. Then, thanks to that, we had something at, uh, let me say it's 15 acres, something like that, extra from this two estate, with some Bourgogne Rouge and Bourgogne Eligote, we don't label our own name, but also a very nice plot of Echozo. A different plot of Premier Cru in Von Romanet included Petit Mont, Latache, Suchot, and Brûlé. Tiny Premier Cru in Nuit called Okra. On a cuvée of new and cuvée of old as well. Then we went, all the estate together from one day, went from uh, eight acres to 21 acres. It changed a bit, but it was okay. And we moved to organic and biomedical farming in 08. In 2012, I was lucky enough to be able to buy a vineyard in New Saint-Georges. It's a clos uh, in Premier Cru uh, in the Monopoly. It's called Clos des Grandes Vignes. And it's uh, in Prombeau-Prisset, and uh, on this area of the monopolies of the Premier Cru, there's a lot of this area. And out of this 5.5 acres vineyards, there is about one acre that is Chardonnay. And now we produce Chardonnay from 2012 vintage at the estate. And I wasn't supposed to be doing any Chardonnay. It's not, we are not in the Chardonnay area, but um, it's much fun to make some Chardonnay at the estate. So in terms of the holdings, 
what's La Romani like to work? The Grand Cru monopole that only you bottle today. Out from Burgundy's point of view, La Romane is a vineyard among the others. When you are a bit more Burgundian, you realize that La Romane is a Grand Cru among the others because it's in the middle of a slope. When you are a bit close from the vineyard, you see that the slope or this slope or this vineyard we have in Burgundy is one slope and it's a succession of a lot of small fissures on the soil. And we are between two fissures. That's why it's so different from the others. When you are going a bit closer from that, you realize that we are here on this area of the Grand Cru, especially in Vaughan, and on the place and mid-slope that where you have the perfect amount of clay, the perfect amount of limestone, but also that you have a good size of the stone of limestone. Why do you not have any Grand Cru everywhere in Burgundy? It's because Burgundy, uh, Grand Cru are usually a mid-slope. Because at mid-slope, you have the perfect level of clay and the perfect level of limestone. You have that everywhere. And why do you not have any Grand Cru everywhere? Just because in some places where you have this perfect level of clay and perfect level of limestone, you don't have the right size of the limestone. That's why there is this kind of posh or this kind of areas in Vaughan, beginning in Vaughan, finish uh, with Chambol or in Gevray after. Then you have a mid-slope, this Grand Cru. No Grand Cru at the north of this part. And you have no Grand Cru at the south of this part before Alos Corton. That is uh, something that's 10 miles from Vaudremont or a bit more than 10 miles. Just because no, there is no at the middle of the slope where you have this perfect level of clay and limestone, the, the, the good side of the limestone. You need the balance. Yeah. It's a very tiny combination, combination of different things. After for La Romane, then we are here, the perfect place in the world to have this level of clay and level limestone, size of limestone. And you have also this something more that I don't know what's going on, what, why you have that. We call this small part in Burgundy Clima. There's no link with the climate. Clima is the way that we call the Liudi or the single vineyard for centuries. And this Clima is different from the others. I don't know why. Maybe because it's not planted east to west or all the others. It's planted north to south. It's probably slightly different. The, the decision to have Grand Cru there and there is not the decision of one day of one guy. It's... When we classified in 35, 1935, when we do the Appellation de Contrôle, the AOC, and we say, okay, this land will be a Grand Cru. It's not a decision of one day, of one guy. No, it's just a decision of a lot of, of people together that just realize what have been written for centuries, especially in the 19th century. There are a lot of writers that say this place is different from the other. This place and you, and La Romale is different from the other. Romale Conti is different from the other. Richbo is different from the other. And for some of them, they say also, oh, this vineyard that is not classified now in the Grand Cru is different from the others. But the other didn't say the same thing. And in 35, when all people together, and there was no obligation, and we are obliged to have Grand Cru, but everyone can do that. People that decide together said, no, this one, we think it's not a Grand Cru status. It will be a premier cru, that will be perfect premier cru, but that has not this something more that make a Grand Cru. 
And the something more is this part of dream that you have in when you taste a wine. When you taste a wine, I think that you have 90% of dream and 10% of wine. Um, 10% of wine have to be really at the top level. But you also have to need to have this 90% of dream that you have among that. And some vineyards give more dream than the others, probably because the wine is, I can't say better, but different in a good way. That's let the people dream on having this dream. That is very important in my mind. There's something mentally that you can latch on to beyond just the taste. Yeah, because testing or drinking wines, it's all the time this different between the two. I prefer drinking wine than tasting wine. Testing wine is very, um, not scientific, but it's very precise. And on my understanding, testing wine is much more description. It's a saying way it is. When drinking wine is much more perception. On, on these drinking wines, when you drink wine, and we, we drink a Grand Cru, you have all this story coming in your mind that if you have been in Burgundy before, you remember the plot where you were. But it also remind you when you were a kid, this few odors that you have. It reminds you your grandmother that cooked for you this jam or this other things or this dessert that you really love and say, oh, that... It's very emotional. I think that drinking wine is really emotional. Um, it's what I try to do with my kids as well. I mean, that's I, no question to know today if they want to be involved or not on the vineyard or on the estate. They, I will let them what they want to do as I was lucky enough to do what I, I want to do. If none of them want to be on the estate, we can find a very good regisseur. It works very well for some very good estate. Claude Tarbe, a perfect regisseur, Sylvain Pitiot. Nobody of the family, of the Momsan family wouldn't be involved in that. And even wine is very good and people are, are, are talking about that. But what I'm trying to do since my, I have kids um, and I have three now is to just give them this information, this this small memory that could have. It has never been forbidden to taste wine on this tasting for the kids, not drinking, but tasting wines. I mean that my kids, since they are two year old, taste wine. I mean that they know that they have to smell a wine, to smell the odor, and to put that in, in their mouth after they spit, of course, because I don't want to make drunk kids. But it hasn't to be forbidden. Because they see that it's pleasure for us. If we begin to say, no, it's not pleasure for you until you are 21 or 18, probably we'll make alcoholic people. Uh, if we let them just enjoy with us without drinking, but smelling and having that in their mouth, and they say sometimes, oh, it's acidic. But they need to know that. And also because it creates their knowledge about the story of their testing history their palate history. I was talking with a very famous sommelier in France when my kids were, my first was very young. And we were talking about that, is about testing or drinking education and testing education. I said, every morning I put my finger on my coffee and I put that on the mouth on my daughter. I said, what are you doing that? He said, because it's bitter. Nobody likes bitter, but we need to know what bitter is because it's one of the sensations you need to have um, I think bitter is very important on the wine. You need to have some bitterness on the wine. But I think it, we begin to forget some things like bitter now on the new education of the people because nobody wants to have bitter. 
but you need to know what it is and you need to have all the time on all that you taste because it's one of the components of the elements of the taste. And if you begin not to have, if you only have only sugar in the future, we have lost at least three or maybe four with the umami taste. That is just a shame because we'll be half blind from the palate and I don't like it. And it's very important. Then all this long digression to be back on this drinkable taste. Wine, when you drink it, is not anymore an element. It was an element, an essential element for many for European people until, well, say, early 60s. The, the people working in the career in France on their working contract, they have the rights of 16 liters of wine per day just to support what they do. It wasn't 15.5 Cabernet from Napa, of course not. It was much more lighter wine, probably 8.5 degrees, but people need that. Pastor said that in the century that the wine is the more healthy drinking thing. Things have changed. We have now clear water at home. We need to keep it clear water at home. That's why also when I see that more and more vineyards that planted now are irrigated. There's something wrong on my mind. I this part also of the story. But yeah, wine is not anymore an element. It's much more now a pleasure. But to have this pleasure, you need to have all this connection with your past, with your taste, with what it makes me you remember. And that's very important in my mind. That's why testing education for the kids is essential on my, on my mind. So you're in a unique position because your family has such an association with the vineyards of Vaughan. You live in one of the grand houses of Vaughan, yep. and you have vineyard parcels today in different parts of Vaughan. What would you say the taste education of Vaughan is in terms of growing up with it? How would you define the taste of Vaughan in its different poor, iterations? Poor, poor, poor. It's not easy. I'm lucky. I have to admit, you're right, being your sense of that. Uh, I'm in a unique position, but I'm lucky. You can imagine how oh, you're lucky when you are you, you are born in Vaughan, the Chateau de Vaughan. You have La Romane on your hands. After you have, it's also very heavy on your shoulder because you have to do the best, better thing that, that you can. But it's good. I, I, but what tastes Vaughan? Vaughan is delicate but firm. It's not Chambol. Chambol is very delicate, very elegant. Vaughan is elegant, delicate, but at the same time is firm. It's not as firm as Nuit Saint-Georges is, especially for the middle part of Nuit Saint-Georges. It could be sometimes slightly rustic as well, on the good way of the rusticity, but it could be slightly rustic. But Vaughan has these aromas of balance, of elegance, with fruit, red fruit that is here, but not so much. Because on the same times, you have a bit more red fruit when you are a bit on clay soil, on the bottom of the slope. As soon as you are going to the limestone soil, you have something a bit more, you have a bit more tension, a bit more brightness. When you are on the clay soil, you have this fruit and you have a bit more spheric taste. Because the clay, when you touch the clay, it's, it's smooth, it's gentle. When you taste the wine made in clay, and I realize that more and more now, and also thanks to Pedro Parra, you know him, he was here. But clay is giving kind of sweetness and giving a bit of 
atmospheric taste. When limestone, limestone is a stone, it's more angular. And it's giving a bit more angular taste as well. It's much more at the middle of your plate, middle of your tongue. Then I love, there is not one style of Vaughan. We are lucky enough to have a lot of different single vineyards, clima. I'm lucky enough to have, I don't know, remember, five or six premier cru in Vaughan. All of them are formed in the same way. All of them, I'm the one maker, but I'm also the one grower. I'm also the one seller, the one drinker. I'm the one everything at the estate. But we are working exactly in the same way, quite exactly in the same way. I mean that we try to be as close as possible in the vineyard and there are some differences between from the different vineyards because the story is different. But the general idea is the same. And even on doing that in the same way, this making so many different wines. And that when you are a premier cru from the bottom of the slope, like the Shom, that is a bit more clay on limestone soil, of course, it's a mix of clay and limestone, but more, more clay soil. You have this round taste, a bit more well-seated, a bit more easier wine. I usually call this premier cru from the bottom of the slope, like Shom, Suchot, or a bit brûlé, but much more Shom and Suchot. I call that the, the go-to-bed wine. I mean, that's the one that you are, at the end of the day, your sofa, you have your dog at your feet, a fireplace in front of you, you have very good leather book, and you drink all oh, very good more whiskey or premier cru like that. That is, it's a wine that I call that the go to bed wine because it's just not tired your pupils, but it's say you, okay, it's time to go to bed, finish that and go to bed, and you have a good sleep. And you have the other premier cru from the top of the slope with much more limestone, much more vibrant, more fresh and I call them the wake up wine because it just at the first drop you have in your mouth they say okay guy it's time to it's time to drink enjoy and this open your purpose and say oh let's go um it's fun because even they are coming from probably a quarter of a mile away from the other they are totally different even I'm working with more of them for 15 years then after 15 years they have a bit of the same short recent story uh, because they are, they are done in the same way, but they are getting huge different grapes and they're making huge different wines. Even we, we vinify them about in the same way. With the La Romani, what is the vine age there? What's the history of the different? For La Romani, the average is about 50 or much more 60 now. One quarter about is... 95 to 100 year old vines make big, big feet. Real half is, has been planted between 53 and 55. And the last quarter is, let's say, we have 110 that is planted, has been planted 20 years ago. And the 15 other person is feet that we, we changed during the 50 last years and it's from zero to 50. Then, yeah, average is 55 year old vines. And how would you say that that differs from the Eschazo that you also make? Also a Grand Cru, obviously not a monopole, but what would you say the difference between the La Romani? It's not exactly the same time, style of soil. It's not exactly the same exposition. Eschazo is a bit more flat. Eschazo is slightly more deep on the soil. And we have two major parcels on the Eschazo. One is on the Cru Vigne Blanche. The slightly white soil, not very deep, but a bit more deeper. On one part is on the Cruovine Blanche, that is kind of sandy soil, it's not sand at all, it's just limestone that is totally uh, 
crushed, in fact. Kind of a decomposed uh, decomposed limestone. limestone. Yeah, right. And it's a blend of these two one that is doing that is doing Eshozo. On La Romania, I think there is more homogeneity on the soil, and it's probably a slightly less deeper soil. How do you well. find those two wines to evolve? You've been working with both a little over a decade, so it hasn't been forever, ever. But in terms of the bottle, two Grand Cru's, how do they show over time? It's not easy to say. I'm only doing them for 13 years. And I have not a long story. Even we have a long family story, but I think the wine growing process has slightly evolved. Uh, wine making process probably a bit as well. But I was lucky enough to, thanks to some American friends, to taste some 1923, by example, La Romane. That was the last vintage made by my great-grandfather. And I tasted on the same times, 1923 and 2002, my first vintage. It was in 04 in New York. Um, I found something like they're coming from the same family, even if there is an 80-year-old wine. They are from the same family. I mean, that's, uh, they have this delicacy, this elegance. I had this big luck to be in help at the beginning, or for a simple reason, because just because my father trusts me, but not so much, I want to have another uh, view of what I did that he's, as an officer on my, as a young, fresh man. Um, and he asked to one of his very old friends from his young time, Henri Jalit, who came at the estate. And Henri came. And Henri wasn't a guy that was giving oh, information or recipe to say, okay, you have to make the wine on this way, this way. Uh, Henri just gave me some lights. I can say lights, yeah. One of the lights he gave me, and that is one that is too essential. The first essential is he said to me, if a wine is not good from the vets, it will never be good. And it was right. And when you think about that, when people say you are, oh, you will see in ten years that would be great. If a tannin is green, I'm sorry, but there is no sun on the cellars, and there is no sun on the bottle, and the tannins won't be ripe. And it was right on that way. It's not because it's a huge, big, deep wine at the beginning that would be more elegant in the first show. Of course not. And it was, he helped me a lot uh, on this way. That's why I'm very confident on the aging. I mean, I'm not doing very deep wine. Um, I'm much more working by infusion than by extraction. On the infusion term is the idea to, to say, okay, we work by pumping over. It's very technical. We, we can very technical. But the idea of infusion is to say, okay, the elements from the grapes that are in your vats that want to come with the juice, they can come. But we don't want to extract the elements that don't want to come. You're not because, pushing down the yeah, cap. Yeah, uh, pushing down over. the cap is, is a mechanical extraction. And I've realized with the time that when you extract... These elements will come at the beginning, but you won't fix them. And it's very simple from a chemical point of view, but the elements that are, they came just because they want to come, and they accept to be included on the juice, they will be fixed because they are fixed naturally. The one that you extract and make in point of view, they will be obvious at the beginning, and after they will, they, they will totally be disconnected from the wine. Then... La Romane, for example, is probably less bigger than it was in the past. Also because we make wines as we are. Uh, and the former uh, winemaker, that was a smart guy, but he was a tall and big guy. 
only make Toland big wine. Reggie Foray. Yeah, Reggie Foray. He's a very good winemaker. But he, he makes wine as he is, tall and big. I'm not as tall as he is. Uh, I'm not as big as he is. And I, I make a bit different wines, I think. A bit, a bit like I'm, I am. And it appeared that after yeah, 13 years working for La Romane, I don't know if I've made a good choice. For me, it's a good choice. But I totally assume what I'm, I, I did 13 years ago. And uh, I couldn't work on the same way. Making wine is a succession of about 250 small decisions. Then one decision won't have a huge impact, usually, on your wine. But it's a combination of all these small elements. And year by year, we, we have a small evolution, of course, on the decision. Not big ones, but uh, we make some tr tests and we try to improve the quality year by year because I think Burgundy have dramatically improved the quality in the last year. Improve because the ripeness is much better. The vineyard management is deeply better than in the past. Also because we have moved, as I said in the past, from this wine as an element to wine as pleasure. And we have realized that if we want to sell our wines, they have to be at the top. And I think that, yeah, quality in the winemaking also have really evolved. Uh, the evolution is also due to the fact that we are traveling much more than we traveled in the past. Most of the winemakers now, not on my age only, but even elder, after finishing school, have spent years or in Napa or in Sonoma or in Australia or New Zealand or in Chile. Just because they have time to do that and the, the family push them to do that. Not to learn how to make wine somewhere else or to steal some ideas. Just to open your eyes and to realize that there is something other. And to realize that countries like Chile, by example, there is no bad wine in Chile. There is a lot of good wines that are not known at their own quality, but there is no bad wine. They can admit to sell a bad wine when sometimes... Still a, a bit now, but not so much in Europe or in France, especially because it was AOC, a person de contrôle, and we have this 15th century of history of making wine. We bought some wines that were so and so. Um, if people say to us, oh, the quality is not here, I say, oh, you don't know. You are not European. You don't know how to make wine. Then we have this kind of European ego. Things have changed now, hopefully, because with the open market as well, we are obliged to change. But uh, yeah, I think that Burgundy have really dramatically um, evolved in the, in the past. And the wines haven't changed so much, but the quality have increased, yeah. And one of the things that you evolved was your own farming. So you went to organic, as you said, and then to biodynamic. Mm -hmm. And what caused you to make those changes? The idea is, as one is a pleasure, you can, uh, to do a pleasure, have a huge impact on the planet. I'm not a big ecologist, green guy. I have a car and I admit that I have to fly to come here. I cannot come with a boat. But if I can lower my impact on the planet, sometimes it's better. Also, I live in Von Romani. My kids live in Von Romani. We know that there is connection between pesticides on the concert and disease like that. I'm not sure I want to be responsible of the concert of my kids in the future just because to work on the simplest on more money-making point of view, I've used the herbicides. Um, also because we ferment 
these scripts that we produce. When we ferment something with pesticides and that kind of stuff, I'm not sure it's really good for the health of the people. And as we, our job is to give pleasure to the people, if we can give them a bit longer pleasure that by not being sick because of us, I think it's better. I think it's better. That's, that's why I've moved, I moved to organic and organic wasn't enough on my mind. Biodemical approach, BD approaches. Some people say it's bullshit. Maybe it is. But it forced us to have a deeper view or deeper eye on what we do. And that's very important. I think that even if people say it's a placebo, maybe it's a placebo. Who cares? I didn't, I didn't have an impact on my neighbors when I do my spraying. They have impact on my side when they make spraying of, of pesticide herbicides. I have no impact. When you spray four grams of silicium on early morning, four grams, that means that's 1.5 gram per acre. There's probably no impact if they're raising that. I think there is an impact. But even if there is no impact, we are closer from the vineyards. We are more precise in the way we do. My team is happy to do that because they realize also that as spending the whole day long and all week long in the vineyards, when they are arm on head on pesticides, they have... Um, head primer or brain primer at the beginning uh, after a day when they are working on cup on sulfur no and also they are looking because they know that we prevent the disease we are not trying to stop the fire um, we need to be very precise on have a very precise eye on the vineyard and they are much happier to work on this way than to work on the way that we, we work in the past then all that together make me feel that you know, organic and being my family is, is the only one way to produce um, uh, grapes now, even in Burgundy. Have there been changes that you've made or moves that you've made in terms of farming or in picking in relation to climate change in that region? Not yet, because we begin to have some impact. We realize that we think slightly change, but the climate change or the global warming is helping Burgundy at that period. We have ripeness that we have never had in the 70s, by example, or the 80s. On the, let's say on the 15 last years, because it was the 15th vintage at the estate this year, we had one that we weakest at the other, 04 maybe. But even it's weakest, it's not a bad vintage. I really love the 04. I'm still drinking them. On um, the, this green taste that I had after the bottling slightly disappeared, or deeply disappeared now. Then the, the global warming is helping us, but it's just it's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is it won't stop. Then we'll have riper and riper pinot. On I'm now working in different places of the world, Chile on on Oregon, uh, by example, just to improve my knowledge of different climate with Pinot. Warmer climate for, with Pinot with uh, Chile, by example. Just to have a look on what, how we can find a better balance on the ripeness with a bit more warmer climate 
chill is much warmer, of course, but to learn what we can do, to know that in if we have some problems in 20 years, I will have the answer and we know what to do. Uh, then it's to be one step ahead where I am now that I'm doing that. Then I learn a lot of things also in those different countries I work with because it's different culture, different approach. And I really love to do that. And, and when I'm working as a consultant for these companies, it's also much more for myself, for my side, just to learn to improve my quality because it's crazy, but we can't stop improving the quality on what we do. At Le Jabalier, the grapes come in, and then what happens next? You mostly take the stems out. Yep. That the Jaillet's winemaking system, it was 100% distemmer. I still using the distemmer for most of the wine. We distem most of them. But since 07 now, we have begun to make some tests to see, because everybody was talking about whole cluster and things like that. When you have one visitor out of three that say, oh, do you use whole cluster or not? And you say, no. And you say, oh, you have to, it will be better. Uh, I remember one guy I met, let's say, uh, 10 years ago, a bit, bit less, eight years ago, in California, he was sitting next to me at a dinner and said, oh, you make good wine stream, Michel, but you can make better. He was not involved at all on the wine business. But he says to me, oh, I know. I say, okay, let's let you know. Ah, if you use whole cluster, it would be much better. And I say, I don't know if it would be much better. It would be different for sure. Maybe you would prefer that. But do we have to make wine for you first or for me first? And I have to be very honest. I make first wine for me. I don't produce enough wine to make an inundation or flow all the, the, the world with my wines. And I'm sure that I will find enough clowns that have about the same taste as mine to drink my wines. And I prefer to be on, on, my, on my way. But yeah, World Cross is a, is a question and it's in 08, 07 we, we have begun to make some tests. Um, for the Lime Sunny Premier Cru, this like, the Premier Cru we were talking before, that are a bit more go-to-bed wine and I want just to push them to be a bit more wake-up wine. Uh, I'm using some whole cluster, yeah. Um, so uh, it matters what kind of soil a parcel is. Yeah, on, on my knowledge of the vineyard as well. I mean, that it's mainly for limestone and clay soil, but with uh, dominance on, on clay. But after, it also could be my feeling on, say, okay, this year, yes, this year, not. Winemaking is really about feeling. And the feeling is not a day feeling. It's just the accumulation of this all together that we have during the whole year we spend on the vineyard because I'm a lot on the vineyard. Even I'm less now than I was in the past, but I have a very good team and we have the same spirit. That is very important. But my feeling on the winemaking is, is made of a succession of what I've seen made on the vineyard in the past. When I saw pruning, when I saw how the, the branches are, Oh, I saw how the laterals are when we will remove them, and like that. It's all this small input that allows me to have this feeling and to say during the harvest, okay, this one, let's go. This one, no, not this year, because I have not the feeling to do that. After nothing is scientific in, inside that, so it's only the feeling, but the feeling is, yeah, really um, a combination of a lot of input of the year. 
a little bit of whole cluster depending on the parcel and the, the style. Um, after of the it's secret. No, there is no secret in winemaking, of <laughs> course. Um, then depending on the vineyard, uh, then a bit of whole cluster or not. After it's a cold soak for about one week. As well, it could be shorter, it could be longer, depending of the answer of, of the vats uh, of that cold soak under 15 degrees. The idea of this cold soak is to have this infusion and to catch the flavors. It's at that time on my mind that we really catch the flavors. And I'm, I'm really focused on the flavors. I'm not focused on the color, I'm not focused on the tannins, the one, 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 two came, that one came. Pinot is not a heavy color wine. I probably make heavier color than I did 10 years ago, but 10 years ago it was um, dark rosy. It wasn't exactly red, but I assume it. Then um, I, I, I'm really focused on the flavors. That's essential. Pinot is flavor. Everything about Pinot is flavor on my mind. Then uh, this week of cold soak, after we let the fermentation begins, uh, we don't use any yeast, of course. Fermentation begins, takes between... Uh, well, you know, sometimes three days, you don't know why. And even you want to slow them, they don't want. And sometimes it's 10 days, depending. And after fermentation, we we are doing pumping over during all this time, twice twice a day. And as soon as there is more sugar, we just make one pump over a day. And we let them leave. I mean, that we don't keep them warm here. That's actually, I'm, I'm against that. I let them leave. We test every day, every single day. At the end of the day, we test the sample that we made in the morning, on the sample of the day before, on the two days before, to see the evolution, on the way that we decide if we press or not, and we decide for the day after. Then sometimes we don't press for three days, and sometimes we have four press in the same day because don't know why money is changing, my test is changing, and all that. Also, this decision is done between myself, one guy that worked for me in the winery, on my analogist. I'm an analogist and I have the knowledge, but I have somebody that is not here to give me information. She's here to give, to make the analysis. But also, we know, we, we knew each other for 15 years now. You know, it tastes on when, after one month of harvest, working seven days a week, you could be a bit tired sometimes. I don't smell so well, anything like that. It's good to have two other people to test with you to see, okay, I have this feeling, but you confirm or not, but I'm, I'm doing the last decision. Then we press, we have a small vertical press. We bought it in 09. That's probably the best buy I've done. Probably the cheaper press we can find in the world. It's only a piston, it's press. And we are next to the press and during all the pressing, I take the wine. As soon as it's not, well, as I'm, I'm looking, we stop pressing and it's finished. We put that all together. We add all the time the juice, the fragrant juice to the press because press is part of the wine. If we begin to separate the press to say, ah, we will see in the future and then there's something wrong in my mind. We add together, we let settle them for about a week to have clear leaves and then we fill the barrel. And after we have filled the barrel, 100% new oak since O2 for all the wines and not for the wine. Uh, we let the wine quiet in the cellar. We never make any racking. We don't add any sulfur. We just make the chopping a week and we taste them. And when I feel it's ready, we make the racking, we add sulfur and we make the bottling. And that's it. Very simple. I'm pretty lazy. 
on on what I do. But it's worse. And how have you seen the conditions of the last few harvests? How would you summarize eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve through fourteen? Well, eight, nine, ten. That's lots. <laughs> um, let's begin with seven. Early vintage, peak late August, early September. A vintage I really love. I call that a decadent vintage because it's the ones are not very clear. The no, the ones are not what you're looking exactly for a Pinot, but I love this tasty that you can have in the 07 now. It's vintage that I'm really tasting now. And I love to have this 07 now on the cellar because it's a way to f- forget the other ones and to test something that is tasty. 08, a bit later, vintage, low in crop, hard to achieve the ripeness, but good because it was a bit colder vintage. Uh, we picked a bit later. And I love this slightly late harvest in September because it's giving a bit more density to wine. I really love the 08 because it's a very balanced vintage. We can compare that with a bit with the, the 10s, talking about the balance between, um, and everything is about balance, in fact, on the wine, uh, between acidic and, and uh, alcohol. I think 10 is one step over the 08. But more zip. Yeah. And a bit more vibrant as well. Uh, 08, surprisingly, was a bit close until last year. On a bit by chance, or at one night, I had to come back at home and I, we have a party just next to my house. And the guy said, okay, bring me a Magnum because oh, you have to bring something. And I, I wasn't, I go in the cellar and it was the first part right in front of me. And I picked a Nation's 08. And we open the bottle on all the time, all the night. So people say, "Oh, your bottle is the best of the of the night." And it's, I saw that. I said, "Whoa, it's interesting, something interesting with the 08." And I reopened a lot of the 08 just after, and they were much more open than it was supposed to be. And 08 is that this kind of vintage I really love. I can't say I won't say underrated, but it's it's on my mind one of the bargain you can have in the in Burgundy now. Uh, nine. Sexy vintage, picked mid-September, everything easy, good crop, not very high, but good crop, a bit too easy, a bit too sexy, probably a lack of acidic that gives this sexy taste. A lot of people say it's great vintage, it's maybe much more an American style vintage, on my mind, than, than European. Um, but we opened some now, they're still a bit closed now, but uh, okay. No, it's, it's good ripeness vintage. Maybe a lack of balance. I don't. 10, and I said, getting always perfect balance, low yields, 30% less than usual. But I love this flamboyance. It's vibrancy you have on the 10. 11, early vintage, picked again a bit of the 07, late August, early September. Interesting to know that because. 11 was this early vintage, late August, early September. Or 7 was an early vintage, late August, early September. Or 3 was an early vintage, late August, early September. And when did we pick the last time in September, in August? Uh, 1893. And people said there is no climate change or global warming. Okay. Just good information to know. But things are a bit changing. Uh, then 11. Not at all the characteristic of those seven. I think it's probably South Vintage. 
also because I think the, the crop was was down fifteen percent down than than usual. They are totally shut down now at the period. It's not the most enjoyable vintage you can have at the period because they are not open, but there is a real good potential. It's a bit hey, let's say the eighth and the eleventh are on my mind the bargain you can have now for Burgundy. Because people are not too focused on that. They're focused on the nine for some of them, for the ten, for the twelve for sure for some of them. But not on nine on the on the eleventh, I probably put more money on the on the eighth on the eleven. Um two seven twelve. Uh, small yield, minus thirty percent. Picked not too early. Long aging process. Summer was good, but not so good. It didn't burn the acidic. That's good. And that makes Cyrus vintage. I think it's one step over tense now. Um, we just had for lunch today. They're on the way that are closing down a bit. But they show they are on, on I think there will be um, a bump in 15 years. 13. Uh, that is in in the house. We never picked as late as we picked in 2013. We picked, we begin to pick the 5th of October. It was my 40th birthday. I wasn't supposed to have 80 people in my courtyard <laughs> to, to sing me happy birthday, but uh, it was fun. And, and I won't forget these dates and picking here yeah, on the 5th, 5th of, of October. But it's nothing new than the fact that it's new for us because since 90s, we don't pick. Uh, later than, than the 1st of October but as um, I was born in the 5th of October and my parents every year my father have one week of holidays to go to the harvest and I never saw my parents when I was a kid for my birthday that means that in the 80s 70s and 80s we picked quite early, uh, often in, in October then nothing new but 13 late late harvest uh, loss of 40 percent of of the harvest and that is a key of the vintage i mean that if we have made 100 percent crop we probably will make crap uh, as we did only 60 percent we have a real good consolidation that it's um the ripeness was achieved it was a late late ripeness but we had time enough to have the real the at the same time, ripeness between technical, that is sugar, uh, and acidic, and federical, that is the element that you have inside. And that gives this 13 that is so good. I really love this 13. And 14, I begin to pick on the 15th of September. We press, we press La Romane and Regno this year, the same day that we picked La Romane and Regno last year. It's just crazy. Um, 14, uh, okay in quality, not big, but okay. And quality seems to be very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with. I have the feeling that it looks like a bit the O2, that is pretty good vintage for Burgundy. We have the same September in O2. We, we have not exactly the same summer, but it wasn't so good summer in O2, and 14 was a disaster in Europe, in France. But we have this ripeness that came September, make the wine, and we had luckily sun on north wind from September 1st or 2nd. On this north wind, just concentrate the grapes 
avoids rot on the sun, just ripe the, the grapes. Right? It's a good vintage. On 15, I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's been new for you is the entry into Nuit Saint George in oh. terms of your purchase in the Premo area. Yeah. And also something that's been new there is the production of white wine. Yep. So how did that purchase come along and what have you found in your time working that parcel? Now we need new challenge all the time. It's not easy to find vineyards in Burgundy, especially when you are based in Vaudormanay. Everyone in the world wants to have a vineyard in Vaudormanay. Um, when you are in BD farming, you are obliged to have vineyards in your neighborhood. You can have vineyards everywhere because you just have to follow the climate and the climate is different one village to another. It's, I, I make people laugh when I say that, but on the turnabout of, of Fuzhou, sometimes you have sun, you have rain on, or sometimes often you have rain on one side and not rain on the other side. Then if you're not in this area, you don't know that and you will, you will make a spraying when you need to have a spraying. Then my playground is Vaudremane. I have already a bit of New Saint-Georges. I have a bit more now with this uh, 5.5 acres. I think it's enough on my, on my side now. It's probably my, my next expanding would be on that side if we have an expansion. But it was interesting because having a new vineyard that was already uh, running being farming on, on organic farming helps a bit as well but it's a new change and that new vineyards people say oh yeah it's a new premier cru oh, it's so and so just have to show them that it's, it's not a premier cru for a bad reason it's really good premier cru having a such big piece of land in one time is uh, yeah, a bit different but it's nothing new I mean that in all six when we move from these eight acres to 22 it was the same thing that uh, I need to have new guy working for me, I have a team, and uh, we had this new parcel, we had one new guy on the team, a young guy that we that is working with us. I mean, that we are not asking to people to do that for us and they are in charge of one vineyard. It's a team that is going together because it's the combination of this knowledge of each one that makes the quality. Then, uh, no, it's, things are changing a bit. We need to have a bit more space in the winery. That's it. You, after, you built a little bit of a new winery facility. Not yet. It's on it's on the plans for a close future. Uh, but I realized in fourteen that we have, yeah, we are very short in, in space, and we need to to create a new one. No, it's it's just keeping your brain open to new things. Sometimes you have a we call that in French a train train. It's a daily process that is all the time the same. On You need to have your brain exposed to new things to do your best. That's why we have this vineyard and it's opening my eyes to do different things. We have some whites inside and I can play a bit with whites. Even I'm not from the white side, I don't know. I just know a few winemakers that are top on both colors. It's hard uh, white and red. It's really hard. Yeah, it's really hard to do great wines on, on both colors for a simple reason. Uh, I compare that with port. Making a white wine is three or four months of work. Not heavy work, but of work you have to take care of that every day. It's kind of marathon. On making red is a kind of short run. It's one month, very, very heavy. 
And I don't know, guys, that a sprinter that's very good also in marathon, then I can be better than a very good sportsman. Then that's why also for the whites, I have one of my employees that is much more focused on that. And I still doing every decision, but he makes the daily controlling of that just to be sure that somebody is in charge of that because I really take care of the, of the reds. Uh, but it's fun. I love to have that on, on, uh, yeah, uh, I need to have projects. I mean, that when you say me, you will, you are, you're doing a new winery. Yes. I'm on the way to do a new winery because we have made new bottling winery before finishing all eight. When I have no, I have no projects, I'm dead. Then uh, I love to have projects. Has it surprised you in the sense that when Bouchard bottled Della Romani that was from your vineyard, it was at one price, not not inexpensive, but at one price. And now you have your own label with your own name. It's a monopole as it always was. La Romani sells for some of the highest prices commanded for wine. Yeah. Not a whole lot of wine. It's not my fault. More. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, okay. I think that people, oh, wine lover and collectors, we have to talk about them also because they buy the wine. I'm not looking for Negos wine. Even it's estate from the Negos, they're not looking for Negos wine. I don't know exactly the reason, but one of the reasons is because it's not, it's not rare. Even it's very rare on their own label. The label is not rare. I mean, that a Negos called, uh, I don't know, I can say, whatever. When you have hundreds or millions of bottles with the same label, even it's not the same name as a climat, as the appellation, people say, oh, it's not rare. Then I don't want to buy it. And people are looking for estate wines because they think it's rare. Um, after, I don't want to be rude with Negos because the Negos in Burgundy is doing a lot of good things. I improved the quality dramatically in the 20 last years at the property or the estate. I've improved our quality. But to make a great wine, you have to be borderline. Sometimes you fall, but you have to be borderline. You have to take risks. Yeah. To be borderline or to take risk, you take risk with your own money. When you have a negotiation company, you are not playing with your money. You are playing with the money of your, the owner of your company. The well-makers of the, of the negos are not the owner of the negos. Then when you are an employee of the company like that, you can take risk as we can take risk when we play at our own estate. I'm playing every year with my money. If I make a mistake, I have no money. But it's my money. That's my problem. I can play with. Um, it's not gambling, not at all. But it's just being, I call that borderline, just being at the limit. And it's to make great wines, really great wines, you have to be at the limit. And you have to push your limit all the time. Then Negos in Burgundy are now doing very, very good wines. Sometimes exceptional, but they are much less at the limit that we are on, at, at this state. And I think that, that, that wine lovers are agreed to pay the price of the risks that we take. That's why there is a difference in the price. But yeah, it's, it's, I, it's hard for me to understand why, by example, as you say, we, we had with Bouchard the same wine on different labels. On Bouchard wines are sold for the third of the price of my wine, the same vintage, made by the same guy. 
Because you made the O2, for instance. Yeah, O2, O3, O4. I remember I was one time I was in auction in Asia and we had, it was an O4, La Romani. One lot was DJ Belair, one lot was Boucher Bavis. Just lot one after the other. First lot, DJ Belair was sold for, I don't remember, price. Second lot, Bouchard, the auctioner said, oui, Michel, you're, in, you're here, I'm happy to see you. You did this wine? I said, yeah, I did. It's the same one that the, the one that we just sold. Yes, exactly. Not exactly, but it's quite the same because it's only different by the, the barrels, bottling, and label. That means for sold for the third of the price. Even if we're there, people were there, and I've heard what I said. Then you have this part of things that you don't understand. My goal is not to understand that. I'm happy with, works with me, and it's okay. But has it been an interesting ride? I mean, you come in about 2000, and then there's a lot of interest in the O2 vintage, and then skyrocketing vintage interest from 05 on. Mm. Seems like 05 is kind of a turning point for the Burgundy market internationally. Yeah. Yeah. And then here you are, and then there's been three short vintages in a row, mm-hmm. so not a lot of quantity, perhaps pushing prices even higher, or at least scarcity further you know, it's harder to find bottles. What's the we, we, we had since Santana, we just said before, uh, short vintage. 14 would be a bit bigger. But we have short vintage that it's short the offer. Then I'm sure that the price got up in part for this reason. After there is a real demand everywhere in the world for brownie wines. It's not only US now, America, but it's also Asia. And not China. I have to be honest that China is looking for Burgundy, yes, but not so much. Hong Kong is working much more for, for Burgundy. Then we have less wine and there is more clients. Then it's the market that is like that. When you have less wine and more clients, the price increases. Even we haven't increased every year from the estate. And after, I think that when we saw the increase in the price on the secondary market that we don't manage, I can understand that winemakers say, oh, why these people are doing double, triple of what I do when they have no risk? The risk, we have the risk. Now when an importer says me, oh, we are obliged to support the wine for a few months, I say, come on. It's not a shame for me that you have to support the wine for a year. We support the wine for three years, sometimes longer. And you think that just as being an importer, you have to make a back and forth on supporting that for three weeks and that's finished? No, I'm sorry, but it's part also of your job as an importer or distributor to support a bit the, the vintage, especially also because we have, there is no, it's not very hard to sell burning wines at that period. It's hard, but not so hard. Then I think it's part also of the, of the real of the job the importers on of the distributors. But does it feel good? I mean, in the sense that your family once held so much, then was brought low in terms of holdings by financial conditions, mm-hmm. worldwide conditions and economic conditions. And now it seems like you've timed it just right mm-hmm. to be back in the driver's seat. Yeah, after we had this chance to be at the top or at the peak and at the bottom. We know the two limits. My father was born in 1928 on one of the wealthiest families from Burgundy. And in 35, when he was seven, he was one of the poorest. But yeah, 
poor part among, among the poor of the of the wine business. Then we know where we're coming from. We don't know exactly where we're going to, but we have some ideas, probably more than some other people, because we have this long story. After, you need to know where you're coming from to know where you're going to. You need to know not only your story, but the story of your neighborhood, the story of your market, and that to know a bit more, of to have a bit better view of where you're going to. And when you were talking about the price of La Romelle, for example, in the, in the past, it's maybe because we have this view of the market that the price is like that. And the market has a view of what we want to do. And we are, we are co-responsible of the price, of the increase in price. I mean, that we had increased the price of the estate, but not at the level of that it is now on the market. But the, I think that the, the market have understood that there's probably something to do with La Harmony as well. It's cool. It's okay. It's life. You mentioned you have a consulting project in Oregon. How did that shape up and what does that involve? Oregon happens two years ago, three years ago, 2012. Mark Tarloff, that I knew for a long time, the former owner of, uh, or the creator of Eveningland, went out from Eveningland for different reasons. On this side, you have a new project in Oregon, but based on on the Pinot, not anymore on the Chardonnay, because Eveningland was mainly based on the Chardonnay at the beginning. And came at the estate, and, and we talked together and asked me to join the team to do something on, I thought it was a good idea for me to see some other Pinot, but I want to see first Oregon. Oregon is a very nice place. I think it's a very good place for Pinot. And what I love also there is, because there is no limestone soil, I won't hear people say, oh, you will try to make Burgundy in Oregon. No, I just try to make the best Pinot I can in Oregon. I will learn, I learn a lot of things from that process, on that consulting. I'm just out, I was in, in Oregon last week, and it's much fun for me, and it's a lot of new information to improve my quality at the estate. And we realized that in the first year, 2012 vintage, we have the best score for the, uh, that I've ever been done for, uh, given to Pinot in Oregon, just in one year. And I think there's still something to do. We have a big improving process now, but I'm sure that we can make very, very nice things. And also I think we bring some, not new things, but a different view of what Oregon is. On this also process of infusion, on having this something more approachable, more drinkable. Not to say that Oregon and Pinot are not drinkable, but they are different. Uh, there is a lot of different approach in Oregon, and we are giving also our own uh, approach. Is it a good approach or not? I don't know, but I drink this wine. And it's, it's interesting for me. And for several years, you've had a project in Chile as well. And how does that... Same thing. Um, same thing, having some new information. I'm consulting in Chile for eight years now. But also I have my own project with two good friends. One you just had a couple of weeks ago with Pedro Parra. This Monsieur Terroir, this uh, doctor in Terroir. This guy that is able to connect the soil with who you will take the wine after. And Francois Massoc, that is an old friend from Chile as well. He's an We are in the same school in neurology. 
on this process called Aristos, Aristos means excellent in, in Greek, the idea of this process or this project was to say, okay, there is a lot of very good terroir in Chile. Even people say, oh, no, it's only sun and sea. When you have this 6,000 kilometers long country, there are some different things. And the idea with Pedro and Francois was to say, okay, we want to find the best place for each major agrobarity. Then we have found, we think, for Chardonnay and for Cabernet Sauvignon. Then we make both in Cochagua Valley and very high altitude, between 900 and 1100 meters. That is pretty high, but it's a way to keep the freshness and not making overall ripe Chardonnay or Cabernet. And we have planted some Pinot as well that will begin to have some harvest a bit this year, but many next year, and we'll see if interesting as well, because we think we have found also a good place for Pinot. But it's a tiny project. I mean, it's every QV is 250 to 300 cases, that is nothing. It's much more fun. But it's a way to do something with two very good friends, to feed our brain with new things. For me, uh, because I'm consulting for another company, a couple of other companies in Chile, to see uh, Pinot in a very warm climate, probably won't have in the 20 next years or 30 next year the same climate in Burgundy. But it's interesting to see very, very warm Pinot, to see what is so different. Uh, on a physical point of view, it's very interesting. Then it's um, all these, these projects, Oregon, Chilean, that is uh, much older, um, all the time, my goal is to improve my quality at the estate. And it's also to be able to play a bit with grapes that we are things that we are not allowed to do in France because of the laws and also because of the tradition uh, we can play. It's free spaces. We can make uh, some things and we can make some experimentation and it's very interesting. And it's for me, it's a bit of fresh air sometimes. And I really love that. And you're working with Cabernet, Merlot, and a bit of other Rhone grape varieties. Mm -hmm. right? What's that like? We are working with Cabernet, Merlot, a bit of Syrah and Petit Syrah, and Chardonnay. And it's, oh, it's fun. It's, but it must be different to work yeah, with Yeah, yeah, it's that a different. It's, only small, it's much more the knowledge for the Cabernet on, on this stuff. It's much more the knowledge of Francois Massoc, my partner. Your partner. That's why we are three partners, because Francois has a very deep knowledge of this kind of grape variety, especially in Chile. That helps a lot. And after Pedro have the knowledge of the terroir, and uh, we have also some Maipo uh, Cabernet, and everybody's looking at the Maipo Cabernet. It's not exactly what we want to have, and we are using that for, to do a second, a second vin, in fact, called Baron, when the major, the Bordeaux blend is uh, not coming from Maipo Valley, and uh, it's called Duque. And the Chardonnay is called Duquesa. How do you see these projects and your domain in Burgundy changing over time? What's going to happen in the next 13 years? Henceforth, you're building a new winery in Burgundy? Building a new winery in, in, in Burgundy, but it's a space, I mean, that's winery. Uh, that won't be Cheval Blanc winery. It will be a simple winery that looks like a bit the house. To be sure that when we are we look on that from the house, we are not, it's not shame of that, and we are proud of what we have done. But it's it's much more space because we need space. So this winery is too short now for what we want to do. And we are not efficient. That's why we are going to do that. 
the idea is also to expand the estate if we can, but expansion will be, as I said, in my close neighborhood. I mean, a thousand Côte de Nuit. Uh, that is really close neighborhood. And after, I don't know, I mean, that I really enjoy being a consultant because it's really feed my brain. After it takes a lot of time, then I won't be, uh, I won't be Monsieur Roland. And the first one, I don't want to be Michel Roland. Even I think this guy, even went too far, have improved the quality of the wine. Not only in France, because he didn't come back in but in Bordeaux. But in different countries, he, he, he pushed the limit a bit, and it's good for that. And I, I'm not looking to be uh, Hubert de War or Michel Roland, but it's, it's interesting, very interesting for my side. How do you see your family history affecting your everyday actions? Father was a general, <laughs> military family. Father was a general, educated by his grandfather, was a colonel, a major on the army that was during the First World War in Verdun, and that was uh, commanding his, his artillery battery. Then that's giving us slightly 19th century education. That is interesting for me. I love that because you have less rights and more, uh, okay, the devoir in, in, in English. I mean, you, you need to do, you have to do much more than you have rights. Uh, and it's good. I think it's, and also you are looking on the glass that is half full and not on the glass that is half empty. It is very important as well. After, yeah. Being a vicomte, the son of a count, future count, the eighth, the seventh count of the family, that's very old style. But also, it's giving some rules to follow. When I'm trying to give these rules to the kids, to our kids, we are, I am, a link of a chain. I hope there is some others link on the chain after me, but I don't want to break the chain. I'm a link on the chain and I'm here to give to my kids what my parents gave to me. If I can give them more, I will do my best to give them more. But my idea is not to give them less. We have an enjoyable life, but we are not looking to have more. And the more that we'll have, if we have some, will be for the kid. I mean, that uh, it's not earning money to spending money. It's having things to create something for the kids. Um, chili is something like that. Chili is creating something new for one of the kids, if one of, the, of them wants. It's to give to every, we have three kids. The idea is to give, to give to each of them something that we create for them as well, or that we develop for them. And um, having three kids forced me to have or create three things. We have Burgundy. That probably will be for the house, at least for my son, because it's family, so you have a family house. It's totally stupid idea, and I know that. But, okay, it's like that. Um, Chili could be a second one, and, and we can have some other ideas. Louis-Michel Leger Bellier, he's applying a 19th century education to a 21st century Burgundy market, and he's looking for new ideas. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Davy. Louis-Michel Leger Bellier of Comte Leger Bellier. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, 
and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.